and welcome to the Made to Lead podcast, a show where we tell the personal and professional stories of amazing people of African descent who are leading in their own way. I'm your host, Aziz Garuba, and on each episode, I interview a dynamic individual and discuss their achievements, challenges, dreams, and aspirations, and the lessons that they've learned along the way. My guest today is the Honorable Ahmed Hussein, Minister of International Development for Canada. He was first elected into office in 2015 to represent the riding of York South Weston. And Minister Hussein immigrated to Canada in 1993 and settled in Toronto. He began his career in public practice after finishing high school while he was working with the Hamilton Wentworth Social Services Department. At the time of this recording, Minister Hussein was the Minister of Housing and Diversity and Inclusion, but he's also served as Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, and as well as Minister of Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship. He co-founded the Region Park Community Council in 2002, and as its president then, he played a key role in securing over $500 million in terms of revitalization for Region Park, while advocating for its 15,000 residents to ensure that their interests were protected. He was awarded the Queen Elizabeth II Golden Jubilee Medal for his leadership efforts in the Region Park community. So yeah, I'm very happy to have you here, Minister Hussein. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, and, and we're really excited to have this conversation with you uh, uh, on your experience. So um, tell me a little bit about yourself. Let's talk about your background, You know where you were born and how you came to be uh, uh, in, in politics. I was uh, born in Mogadishu, Somalia, and I... Uh, I grew up there uh, in my formative years, and then I uh, I left Somalia with my parents, um, and I moved to Canada, and I came to Canada as a refugee uh, in 1993 at the age of 16. Uh, I already had two brothers here, so I joined. I, I lived with one of them, then moved to Hamilton to uh, go to high school. Uh, worked my way up there and came back to Toronto to, uh, to to study at York University to complete my undergraduate studies, then worked here, uh, worked in Toronto um, on a number of things, uh, and then uh, went back to school uh, to become a lawyer and, and run for office in 2015 uh, uh, for the writing of York Southwestern. And... Uh, I skipped over a part that uh, prior to running for office, uh, uh, in addition to, to my work as a lawyer, I did a lot of community work, a lot of uh, work in, in places like Regent Park, where I spent seven years really working on the redevelopment plan there, um, uh, transforming that community with a number of colleagues to really fight for the rights of uh, the more than uh, 21,000 people who lived there at the time uh, fight on issues around affordable housing and access to uh, safe community uh, jobs, uh, economic opportunity, and so on. So all of those lessons I was able to bring uh, to, to politics because uh, it's the same thing. You're, mm -hmm. you're fighting for people. You're fighting for uh, people to have the necessary resources that they need to succeed and so on. And so I benefited from those programs. I benefited from the local community library. I benefited from social housing. I lived in a social housing unit in Regent Park. Mm -hmm. I benefited from student aid and transit and, and, and all the supports that someone needs to, uh, to succeed. And so I felt that in 2015, um, that it was important for me to, to take the next step to fight for those services because I felt that 
both local and federal governments at that time were really cutting those services. They were uh, attacking the utility mm. and questioning the, the need for libraries, for example. So I felt that uh, I should step up and defend and expand those services for not just the next generation, but the one after that. And, and my, my politics has been informed in that. I'm a big believer in investing in people and investing in communities. We, we, we are in this together. Mm. And there is a role for government to, to invest in things that, uh, that contribute to social mobility and equality and fairness. And uh, we can't have a situation where people are left to their own devices uh, and, 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 and people are not provided the supports that they need to succeed. Not only is it the right thing to do, it's, it's the smart thing to do economically. We all prosper together when when uh, when we're given the tools to succeed right excellent um, so that that has been my my uh, my motivation to continue uh, to uh, to be involved in public office fantastic and 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 I lived in Regent Park so I've, I've, I've actually witnessed a lot of the the redevelopment that that has happened yeah. there so, so that's been fantastic so in in terms of you know just coming to Canada as you know as an African um, yeah. coming into this into this country, um, what was your experience like just transitioning, you know, the, 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 the culture shock, the, the, you know, just trying to learn the environment, learn the culture here. How did you feel? What was that like for you? Uh, I think the hardest uh, part for any newcomer to Canada, and I, I know this because obviously I worked with many newcomers after, mm. after I integrated into Canadian society is the, you, you essentially, you're happy to be here. You're happy to have a new opportunity to restart your life and rebuild. But, but it's also very uh, worrying because you don't have any networks. You don't have any friends. You don't know anybody except one or two family members. And so you're essentially starting from scratch. And I think that's a very big challenge for many newcomers, whether they're refugees or people come as, as workers to Canada through the economic class and so on. It's tough. You have to re literally rebuild uh, your social network. And I think that was the hardest part, I mean, apart from the weather, uh, getting used <laughs> to, to things like, uh, you know, winter. But but I think that's, that was the hardest thing for me. And I know now by talking to other newcomers that that's the hardest part for them. Mm. Thankfully, now there are amazing organizations that are, are, are making that process easier by, uh, op by opening opportunities for newcomers, uh, uh, enabling professional newcomers, for example, to get Canadian experience, connecting them with employers, connecting them with mentors, connecting them with industry groups. Uh, that is happening way more now than when I first came to Canada. Mm -hmm. I'm happy that people will, will have a, a slightly easier time for sure <laughs> integrating uh, than uh, than those days for sure and and so you know you've you've settled in you've you've gone through the school system what what um motivated you to to seek a career in in law oh i think what so when i was so i was working as uh one of the co-founders of the region park community council and for 7 years it was a really tough fight to make sure that the voices of 21,000 people living there were heard. And 
um, quite frankly, if it wasn't for that organization and this amazing group of people that I worked with, I think our interests and our voices would have been ignored mm. because there were a lot of players in the redevelopment process. But we were determined to literally not be bulldozed. We wanted to make sure that the redevelopment plan and the actual redevelopment um, reflected our uh, our hopes and dreams and mm. our our interests. And I can tell you that uh, that that process, although it was difficult, it was uh, stressful, it was very tough. Um, it was also very rewarding in the sense that we were able to 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 push hard for for those uh, for those changes. So I, I think for me, that was the um, a really defining moment in my life because I was able to see the power of community organizing and the power of uh, advocacy. And in that process, one of the groups that really helped us was a number of lawyers who came uh, from uh, one of Canada's largest law firms to help us in, in our fight to be heard and to help us in our fight to, uh, to make sure that the redevelopment reflected our, our, our interests. And so I was really impressed by the ability of these lawyers to, to help us and to make our work easier and to really help us uh, achieve uh, significant positive results. And from that, I saw that there was, a, there was value in me going and getting legal education to become a better advocate. I was already a community advocate, but I felt that uh, a law degree and a legal education would help me to, to become a stronger advocate who could really empower others. And, and I was proven right because when I, when I, when I came back from law school, I uh, became a criminal defense lawyer who also practiced immigration law and human rights cases. And my one of my main focus was to represent young offenders in in the criminal justice system and, and also uh, refugees and newcomers who were uh, navigating the immigration system. So those two groups of people who really uh, want, you know, sometimes didn't have a voice, uh, I felt that I contributed to to uh, to giving them a more equal chance uh, navigating the system. And I don't think I would have been able to do that had I not uh, pursued law. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So re really relevant inspiration to actually seek that education path to help um, address the problems that you were experiencing. Um, so that's fantastic. How did, how did you then pivot into, into politics? Yeah, so a very good question. I hadn't planned on doing that. Mm. I didn't want to do that. I didn't picture myself as a politician. I was very happy helping uh, people through the legal system. And I was very content with my life. And so if, you, if your question is, did you plan this? Did you envision it? Absolutely not. I, I'm being really honest. Mm. I didn't, not only did I not think about it, I didn't picture myself in that career, and I, and when the topic was brought up, I actually went out of my way to say, no way, mm. no. Um, but what happened was something interesting happened in that in the in the number of years before I ran. So, the 
a couple of years before 2015, there was a trend uh, by both local politicians and national politicians to really cut community services, mm. to really cut them and cut them. Settlement services, libraries, infrastructure, transit, housing, just abandoned their role. And what bothered me even more was, at least at the local level, there were politicians attacking even the need for something like a library, saying that li community libraries are are not needed. They're, they're for the elite, right? And I and I and I just remember thinking, that's incredible that someone will say that, because I, you know, in in university I didn't have. Um, I, when I was trying to find my first job, actually before university, I didn't have enough money to buy a printer. So, guess where I printed my first resume? It was in the printer of the community library, in just outside Regent Park. So, how can this leader say that libraries are for the elite? Well, it's it's so out of touch, right? So, so I kept complaining about that and really lamenting that kind of attack. Uh, both financially and and ideologically on 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 these community services that we all need, right? Mm. And at that point, my close circle of friends get started getting really fed up with my complaints and said, "Look, either stop complaining about this, or do something about it." And I said, "Well, I'm just one person. What what can I really do?" And they said, "No, you you can do something. You can run for office. You can run for office and take a stand against." these cuts and actually maybe fight for investments to these community services that you believe in and that we believe in. And I said, well, no, I, I don't think I can be a politician. That's not my that's not my desire. I'm not attracted to this career. I'm happy being a lawyer. And they just kept at it. They kept pushing me to that. And they kept uh, really being uh, persuasive. And then finally, um, they uh, they persuaded me by using uh, data to demonstrate that I'm not just one person, that I, that I actually have a very good message of community investment and, and investment in, in services, that that message can actually win and that it's it's worth the fight. Mm. And it was only after a really long time of, of persistent convincing that I decided to at least consider what they were doing and, uh, and, and look into the possibility of running for office and I can tell you my entire campaign was had one theme which is I want to fight I want you to elect me so I can fight for uh, community services mm -hmm. and investments in people that was it that 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 was my my 2015 campaign and and since then I've had the the luck of being part of a party and a movement and a, and a leader that actually believes in the same thing, that uh, from the very beginning, we believe in investing in people. So, mm. you know, I'm glad I ran for the Liberal Party of Canada because that was their platform as well, was to invest in infrastructure, invest in housing again, invest in transit, all the things that the federal government had, had abandoned, mm. right? We are back in a huge way. And, uh, and I'm glad that uh, I was able to stay true to the campaign promises that I made to the community that elected me. And I've been able to bring a lot of community investments to that part of Toronto. So for example, in the in within the first year of getting elected, I was able to double 
the number of youth jobs mm. created through federal investments through the Canada Summer Jobs Program. Just in the first year, uh, I was able to bring in uh, significant amounts of money to invest in anti-flooding measures and infrastructure investments in one part of the riding and then subsequently in another part of the riding. That was a huge, huge thing that people had asked me to 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 fight for when they were when I was running for office. Mm. We've been able to do uh, a lot of investments in transit and affordable housing in the, uh, in, the in, in my constituency. And uh, quite frankly, investments in seniors programming and, uh, and, 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 and money for settlement agencies for newcomers. Like all the things that I fought for in 2014, 2015, um, I'm happy to say that I've had the opportunity to really go, get uh, colleagues who have uh, worked with me to help me bring those, uh, those investments back to, uh, back to my writing. Amazing. Amazing. And, and, you know, when you first started, right, did you ever feel a, you know, I think a lot of folks suffer from this whole thing called an imposter syndrome, like, oh, you know, yeah, am yeah, I really yeah, good at this? Yeah, did you ever yeah. feel that? And were there also any stereotypes that you had to overcome um, at the beginning? I think that, I, I think that you know, every, every new challenge that someone embarks on, there is a little bit of uh, a small element of nervousness and imposter syndrome. That's always, always the case. What helped me really in this new job was I had worked in politics as an advisor uh, provincial politics for five years. Mm -hmm. So that helped me a little bit. Uh, my legal education also helped. And the fact that I was an advocate in the community, that made it a little bit easier. But it's still, you know, this job doesn't come with a manual. Right. You, you kind of have to figure it out. And I, I also um, talked to a lot of veterans, uh, members of parliament who've been here for 20 years plus, others who are retired to kind of get their advice on how to uh, how to be an effective member of parliament and minister. So, I mean, those mentors have really helped and I still talk to so many of them. But one of the things that I, I forgot to mention that I was able to deliver also is investments in vulnerable communities, mm. black Canadian uh, community organizations. I'm so proud of that. We were able as a government for the first time in Canadian history to invest in capacity building and infrastructure of black Canadian community organizations. That has never happened before. Never. Mm. You know, before that, it was, here's some programming money, do this program, and then once the program's done, you're done. No one ever took the time to invest in building the capacity of black Canadian community organizations that have done so much for so long, with a lot of impact, but with very little resources. Right, right. And then the infrastructure, so the Supporting Black Canadian Communities Initiative, which I fought for, I then had the coincidence of being the minister responsible for that fund. So what happened was I fought for that fund as a backbench MP and as a as immigration minister, and it was housed in ESDC, but I was in immigration. And then when when I after the 2019 election, the prime minister moved, gave me a new portfolio of, of, within ESDC for. Uh, Family, ch families, children, and social development. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, I became the minister who then had to implement the very thing that I was fighting for, which is the uh, program called the Supporting Black Canadian Communities Initiative, which is about investing in organizations' uh, capacity and infrastructure. And through that program, we were able to save the church in St. Catharines that Harriet Tubman used to, uh, used to uh, 
stay in. Mm. When her and her colleagues and her contemporaries uh, as part of the Underground Railway, that was the church that they frequented. And this church was falling apart. It was going to be condemned. And because of the Supporting Black Canadian Communities Initiative, that church is now saved. There's infrastructure investments we made there. And that piece of Black Canadian and Canadian history uh, will live on. Um, in Windsor, Essex County, there were five organizations, uh, six organizations that applied for funding for infrastructure and capacity. We were able to fund five out of six. Mm -hmm. We ran out of money before the sixth one could get the money. But the point is, um, it was incredible, uh, the, the level of, of, of response that we got. And because of that, and the demand was way more than the money, we were able to get more money in the next budget, $100 million. Mm. Uh, it, so it went from $25 million over five years to $100 million in one year. That's incredible. Because I, was, because I was able to demonstrate that the need is great. We need to, we need to do more. We need to do more. But, I, but we had to first prove the concept, right, mm. that there was a need, right? Um, uh, $50 million set aside for Black Canadian communities how, uh, for housing, to develop housing capacity. Uh, $200 million uh, that will be launched soon that I'm responsible for uh, to set up a black Canadian endowment fund that will live on forever. That's amazing. That will be, that will be uh, and, and three, more than $350 million uh, for a black entrepreneurship program that our government set up to support access to capital for black entrepreneurs. These are things that, honestly, people used to talk about many years ago, mm -hmm. but we never thought it would happen. And we fought hard here, together with other Black Canadian MPs in Black Caucus and, to, and our allies. And today, I, I have to say that the government of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, with our colleagues, they, we've delivered money for Black mental health, for uh, youth programs. Uh, there was a Black uh, Canadian youth program initiative exclusively for Black Canadian youth. Uh, where organizations would apply to provide those services. These are things that the community has been asking for for decades, and I'm proud to be part of a government that has delivered them. Amazing. Th th these are significant accomplishments that I think a lot of folks need to be aware of and you know, hopefully be able to tap into uh, uh, as part of you know, organizations that... Uh, oh, that are eligible for for, yes. the, for this type of yeah. funding. Um, I'll sure. just I'll just pivot a little bit, and, and you know you you've, you've gone through a few portfolios in your in your time as as an elected official, and you know being a uh, a minister uh, of immigration and citizenship, minister of families, and now uh, you know focusing on on uh, housing diversity and inclusion. Um, which one of these portfolios would you say is would you say you know you've you've enjoyed the most? Um, or I think all of them. I mean, it's different challenges. I mean, mm -hmm. think about, so in my previous role as Minister for Families, Children, and Social Development, I had the honor of introducing a national child care program mm -hmm. across this country, something that amazing advocates had been trying to do for 50 years. And somehow every time they would come close, something would happen. In 2006, the government of the day, uh, 2005, actually, the government of the day uh, brought in a national child care program. The next government in 2006 killed it. Hmm. So every time we got close, but now we have one. There's agreements with 13 governments, uh, 10 provinces and three territories with the federal government. We now have a national, affordable, high quality, inclusive child care program in Canada. And I was the minister who 
not only brought it up as an idea, but actually got to sign eight of those agreements before the last election. Wow. And now we have a national childcare program. And I remember when I walked into the prime minister's office in April 2020, and I said, prime minister, we should do childcare. We should do $10 a day childcare. And he didn't say yes. He didn't say no. He said, okay, go, go make your case. Go convince, build your, build your argument. Mm. And I did. I, I said, thank you for the opportunity. And I, and I got to work. And in exactly one year after that, April 2021, we had a $30 billion allocation in the budget to establish a national child care program. So within that year, I had 400 meetings on Zoom wow. mostly to, to build a coalition and support across the country, meeting with chambers of commerce, CEOs, rural communities, ministers, foreign governments, uh, mom and pop groups, rural Canada, indigenous peoples, 400 meetings to, to, to put this thing together. And by August 2021, we had signed eight agreements. Now we have 13 agreements. And today, every child in Canada is seeing their childcare fees cut by half. And in a few years, it'll come down to 10 bucks. Mm -hmm. You can imagine, I was knocking on doors with families who are paying $120 a child per day. Wow. Imagine that fees is now cut to half, and in a few years, it's going to go down to $10. So I was part of that. And that's a huge legacy piece. Yeah, the measurable but if you look at That's right. So, I mean, where do you get a chance to do that kind of uh, impact? Uh, so there is, you know, public service is very rewarding because you get to work on very consequential things. Um, the... But, but also on immigration, I was able to make a lot of changes to facilitate um, the uh, Canada receiving highly skilled people to grow our economy. I was able to increase our refugee numbers. In 2018, when I was immigration minister, we received in absolute numbers, not per capita, not percentage, mm -hmm. in absolute numbers, more refugees than the United States. We, uh, I'm proud of, to be the minister who brought in the rural immigration program to help rural Canada receive skilled immigrants. We improved the processing time and we brought a more fair immigration system. When I took over the immigration ministry, the, a legitimate traveler just trying to get a visitor visa from Nigeria to Canada who met all the requirements would have to wait 129 days for a simple tourist visa. By the time I, when I was done being a minister, that number had come down to 14 days. Wow. Uh, so I increased our footprint in, in Africa, I increased our footprint in Asia. We expanded uh, Francophone immigration from many parts of Africa and, and the world. We enhanced funding for settlement organizations. Uh, I, I really grew the Atlantic immigration program and then uh, made the startup visa program permanent and the global talent stream made a lot of changes to the immigration system. We got rid of a discriminatory policy called um, uh, uh, the designated countries of origin, which discriminated against people based on their country of origin, mm. on what kind of due process they would get for their refugee cases. So I got rid of that, something that advocates had been asking us to do for so long. Uh, we got rid of it. And now everyone gets treated the same. <laughs> you, you, would, you would think like, you know, basic stuff like that, but yeah. it has a huge impact, right? Yeah. And then there's, there was also a 47-year-old policy that said 
that, for example, let's assume you have a family of nine kids uh, with your spouse. That's 11 people. Mm -hmm. You're a highly trained doctor. Your wife is a dentist. Eight of your kids are in good health. One of them has a speech impairment. Because of this excessive demand policy, because of that disability, the entire uh, application would be rejected. Wow. I got rid of that policy. It was a 47-year-old policy that no one wanted to touch. And I got rid of it. And I met a Nigerian doctor who said that his daughter would not be in Canada if it hadn't been for that change. Mm-hmm. So so I think that in my time uh, in those two portfolios now in housing, uh, there's a lot we're doing that I think is moving the needle, particularly when it comes to um, including uh, marginalized communities, mm-hmm. not, not only in investments, but also in policymaking. The kinds of things we're doing, I mean, the Supporting Black Canadian Communities Initiative, when I was minister, we could have just easily dispersed that money from the government. But I wanted it to be dispersed through Black Canadian organizations. Mm-hmm. So larger Black Canadian community organizations were given the money by us, and then they determined the smaller organizations that got the money. They determined the training. They determined the capacity building. They determined the process. So it was truly for Black Canadians and by Black Canadians. That's harder to do because it's easier to just roll out the money. Yeah, That was harder to do. But in the long term, you're building two levels of capacity. You're building the capacity of the big, uh, the big organizations, but you're also building the capacity of the smaller ones. So that's a different way of doing things, right? Mm-hmm. It takes longer, but but it's it's more rewarding. The the endowment fund, the endowment fund will outlive all of us because that fund will uh, will be used to so the the two hundred million will be invested and then the profits and the proceeds will be used to invest in Black Canadian uh, charities and nonprofits. That fund will live forever and it will be outside of government. Once it's established, so any subsequent government that comes will not be able to touch it. Amazing. So, so those are the kinds of transformational things that I'm working on now. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, I enjoyed the other portfolios, but I think in every portfolio or, or any role, whether you're a member of parliament or you're a school board trustee, there's things you can do to really push the envelope and try to um, build more inclusive policies that bring in marginalized people, not just in the investments, but also in the policy making. When you talk to people and you actually listen to them, you make better policies. That's one thing that I've learned. Excellent. Excellent. So so just, just as we wrap up, uh, I just have one yep. final question for you. Yes. Um, what advice would you give your younger self, knowing where you or seeing where you are now and having done the things you've been able to accomplish and now, what 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 would that piece of advice? Be? I would be. I would. I, I. I would. I would. What I would do is I would have been less. Um, less reluctant mm. to approach mentors. I think knowing what I know now, uh, I would have started that journey even earlier. I. I think nine out of ten people who are approached to be mentors are flattered by the by the offer mm. and will say yes most people will will take you under their wing and i think that you know one thing that i i always tell young people is do two things give back by volunteering on any issue that you care about it doesn't have to be this issue or that issue but whatever issue that excites you go and volunteer and then seek out mentors 
seek out mentors because mentors will help you navigate your professional and personal life. And I, I think that's something that I would have made more of an effort to seek, seek out those mentors. Wonderful. Well, Minister Hussein, thank you very much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time and we really appreciate the work that you are doing uh, to support uh, uh, all Canadians and uh, most especially Black Canadians as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that's the Honourable Ahmed Hussein, Minister of International Development for the Government of Canada. Well, thank you very much for listening to this episode this week. As always, I'm your host, Aziz Garuba. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please remember to follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and share with others. Also, if you'd like to be featured or know of an amazing person of African descent whose story would be inspirational to others, I'd love to hear from you. So visit our website at madetolead.co slash get featured and send us a note. And as always, as you continue on your own leadership journey, remember that if you don't spread your wings, you'll never know how high or how far you can fly. So stretch your feathers because you were made to lead.